This tape is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Inner Guidance, recorded March 16, 1997 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Well, this morning we're going to talk about guidance, specifically inner guidance. But before we get into the uh, various forms that it can take, we must remember one thing, and that is all spiritual guidance comes from the same source. And Ramana Maharshi has a very nice way of putting this. He says, The guru is both external and internal. From the exterior, he gives a push to the mind to turn inward. From the interior, he pulls the mind towards the self and helps in quieting the mind. There is no difference between God, guru, and the self. In other words, because all boundaries are ultimately imaginary, these boundaries that we set up in our minds between God and ourselves, or ourselves and a guru, our guru and God and so forth, are all ultimately imaginary. Uh, specifically, that boundary between our small self, our ego self, and the whole rest of the world, uh, whether it's an interior world, the world of dreams and so forth, or the exterior world, all these boundaries are ultimately imaginary. There's really only one source for everything. All of this is a divine manifestation. And so, in a sense, everything has a potential to be a teaching. Since everything is a, uh, a self-disclosure of the divine, as the Sufis say, uh, every object, every situation, every person, every being is a form of the divine, constantly coming into being and going out of being. So, truly speaking, the whole world is a teaching. But from the point of view of a deluded person and a seeker, guidance seems to come in two basic categories. And that is guidance coming from the exterior, for instance, in books that you might read, or a, a human teacher that you might have, or listening to audio tapes, or uh, seeing videotapes, or whatever. And then guidance that comes from inside, or seems to come from inside, that can manifest in dreams, or visions, or inspirations, or uh, all sorts of forms like that. So, as I said this morning, I want to concentrate on this inner guidance and talk about some of the ways that it can manifest and then talk about some of the ways that we might be able to invoke it. Now, the whole subject of inner guidance is kind of slippery because there are so many various forms and subtleties in it. So I'm going to be talking about some of the more common uh, types of guidance or forms in which it can manifest. But we must remember that Really, in each individual's case, the guidance is tailored to that individual. It's a very precise relationship. Everybody gets what they need. Whether they know it or not is a different story, but every, everybody's always getting just the kind of guidance they need. It's really very much like a key in a lock. So while we can talk about categories of guidance and ways that it can show up, really you have to look in your own life because sometimes it can be quite subtle. Inner guidance comes from what's called in various traditions the inner teacher or the inner guru. And we can think of it as a kind of inner intelligence or wisdom that is beyond our normal ego capacities. In other words, the experience of it is 
coming from a, a deeper level than the rational mind, the intellectual mind, uh, worldly wisdom, and so forth. So here's what the Lakavatara Sutra says about this, a Buddhist text. And it, uh, the Lakavatara Sutra calls it transcendental intelligence or intuitive mind. It says, transcendental intelligence rises when the intellectual mind reaches its limit. And if things are to be realized in their true and essential nature, its process of mentation must be transcended by an appeal to some higher faculty of cognition, if there be such a higher faculty. There is such a higher faculty in the intuitive mind, which is the link between the intellectual and universal mind. So we have this idea of something, uh, an intermediary, a bridge, we find the same idea in Sufism. In Sufism, the intuitive mind is called the universal intellect. And here's what Rumi says about it. Whoever possesses a partial intellect is in need of instruction, but the universal intellect is the originator of all things. Those who have joined the partial intellect to the universal intellect so that the two have become one are the prophets and saints. So I... I drew up this little diagram, simple little diagram, just because I'm visual, I like to have visual aids. This is a mandala, but the mandala here has four rings. The center ring, we can think of God or consciousness itself. It's that totally unmanifest space from which everything unfolds. And then the next ring out, we can think of as the inner teacher, and this is the realm of archetypes. And this is the realm of that universal uh, intelligence, uh, the intuitive mind, uh, transcendental wisdom. And then beyond that, on the next outer ring, is the ego. This is the mind that we're normally familiar with, the discursive mind, the rational mind, the intellectual mind the personal imagination that we don't feel is coming from outside ourselves, that we have a sense that we are doing it. And then finally in the outer ring is the outside world where the outer teacher is located, you might say. So one of the important things here is to notice that inner guidance always seems to be coming from inside you, but beyond the ego, the ego mind. It has that quality. The other thing to notice here is really that the outer teacher is just a reflection of the inner teacher. From a mystical point of view, there's really uh, no difference. It's the same ultimate source of wisdom. And one of the primary functions of an outer teacher is to awaken your inner teacher. And this isn't uh, as easy as uh, at least I imagined, and I think I've said this before when I first started teaching, my first idea, because I had had Athena as a guide, I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. I'm just going to awaken everybody's archetypal teacher, whatever form it takes for them. And I actually uh, took a bunch of people down to Lone Pine. We spent, what, three or four days uh, doing exercises, going off alone and uh, trying to contemplate your archetypal teacher. Some people brought pads to draw things spontaneously and all that. And 
didn't uh, <laughs> didn't work out. It was an interesting weekend. Everybody had a lot of fun. I think some people got some insights from it, but nobody got kind of archetypal a teacher aroused that stayed with them the way Athena did with me. So after a few months, I realized I had to give up that idea. It wasn't going to be quite that simple. But truly speaking, the function of the outer teacher is to awaken ultimately the inner teacher in you. Whether that a teacher appears in a form like Athena is not so important. This is why the Jewish scholar Gershom Sholem writes about the great Kabbalist Abraham Abulafi, that Abraham Abulafi differentiates between the human and divine teacher. If need be, one could manage without the former, yet by no means could one forgo the spiritual teacher who confronts man at the secret gates of his soul. The same idea occurs in Christianity, and Jesus, on the eve of his death, just before he's about to be crucified, was talking to his disciples, and they're all bemoaning the fact that he's leaving them, the outer teacher's leaving. And he says, I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another comforter that will be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth, which in Christian tradition is the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. But here he's saying very specifically, uh, telling his disciples very specifically the function of the spirit of truth. It's a teacher like him, but this one will be with them forever. This one can't uh, vanish. The form can't go. So he's directing their attention inward to find this spirit of truth. Now, in some cases, the spirit of truth, the inner teacher, uh, can manifest in a subtle form appearing in visions and dreams. So when we go to sleep, one of the interesting things about sleep is that there's sort of this window between the archetypal realm and the ego. Uh, it's not that the ego disappears completely, uh, usually in dreams. You still are aware of being an, an ego, uh, an I, even though you're in a totally different world and you may not uh, be aware that you're dreaming at all. But you can meet figures in your dream who are archetypes, as Jung called them, subtle forms of this inner intelligence. So it's like this inner intelligence, this wisdom is garbing itself in a kind of subtle form to appear to you and to teach you. This, of course, is how Athena first appeared to me. I appeared in a, in a very numinous dream, and she gave me a sword and said, with this sword you can cut through to the heart of truth. And when this happened to me, I had no idea that this ever happened to anybody else. I mean, I thought this was really bizarre and strange, and... Uh, uh, I, I just had never heard of anything like this before, but actually it's quite common. Last week when we were talking about the awakening of faith, the beginning of a spiritual path, I mentioned a couple of uh, instances of this. The, remember the uh, Karib shaman initiates who in the process of initiation meet a female water spirit in the early stages of initiation, and then she becomes their guide through the rest of their path. And I also mentioned Longchenpa having a vision of a woman who appeared to him and said very uh, almost the same thing that Athena said to me. She said, I will be your guide, I will be with you. So those are just two instances, but it's actually it's even more common. Teresa Vila describes visions of, of Christ appearing to her. And here's what she says. She says, I speak of an image, but it must not be supposed that one looks at it as a painting. It is really alive and sometimes even speaks to the soul and shows it things both great and secret. So here she's talking about this, this image, this archetype of Jesus appearing to her in a vision and actually speaking, communicating, dialoguing. Uh, Rabbi Isaac of Acre 
who was a Kabbalist. He gives this account of seeing the guiding angel Metatron. This is a classic archetypal figure in Kabbalism that appears to people. And here's what he says. While I was yet sleeping, I, Isaac of Acre, saw Metatron, the prince of the face, and I sat before him, and he taught me and promised me many good things that would come to me. So this is the same thing. Now notice that the archetype is usually appears in a form that is commensurate with the tradition. So Christ doesn't usually appear to Buddhists, and Buddha doesn't usually appear to Christians and so forth. So then, what sort of things would you be taught? Well, here's an example from Miriam Abdun. She was uh, Bin Arabi's wife, and she gives this report. She says, I have seen in my sleep someone whom I have never seen in the flesh, but who appears to me in my moments of ecstasy. He asked me whether I was aspiring to the way, that's the Sufi path, to which I replied that I was, but that I didn't know by what means I could arrive at it. He then told me that I would come to it through five things, trust, certainty, patience, resolution, and veracity. So here she's receiving a teaching of general principles to apply to her life. Now, notice it's interesting that, of course, all these principles are certainly important for everybody, but there are certain ones that are left out. For instance, uh, this, this archetypal figure didn't mention generosity. And again, here's an example of uh, how a teaching is geared specifically for your situation. We may presume that she was already a very generous person. Generosity wasn't a big thing she had to work on. Do you know what I mean? The reason these five things are picked out for her is because that's what she needs. The teachings can be much more specific that you could receive. For instance, uh, while Namakai Norbu, this Tibetan that I mentioned earlier, was in Italy, he had a dream in which he visited his old teacher back in Tibet. He was a Tibetan who had escaped from Tibet when the Chinese came and gone to exile, and he ended up in Italy, and he hadn't been back to Tibet in years and years, but in his dream, he went back to Tibet, and he saw his old teacher, and they had a conversation. His old teacher said, what have you been doing? What practices have you been doing? And, he's, and he said, well, I've been doing this trekchad practice that you, know, you told me to do, and I've been doing this for a number of years now. And the teacher says, well, you're still doing that trekchad practice? Uh, I didn't mean for you to do the rest of your life. It's time for you to go on to the Togo practice. What are you waiting for? Togo practice is more advanced. So he said, okay, I'll do that. So he came back and he switched his practice in waking life. So here's a situation where he got a very specific teaching related right to what was going on in his life. And of course, this uh, again, this universal intelligence is now appearing to him in a form of his specific teacher, not even a, you know, abstract Buddha, but his own particular teachers appearing in the dream. So this universal intelligence, this intuitive mind can take any form that will get your attention, that will suit you. Sometimes the inner teacher can continue to give a guidance via an inner voice or an inner presence. And again, this was my case with Athena. It wasn't so much giving specific teachings like you should do a certain kind of practice, but it was very terse. Go here, don't go there, do this, don't do that. 
and then I just have to go and find out what was happening. Or sometimes there would be a, a sense of a confirmation. If I started doing a practice, I would know that it was something approved of. It, it wasn't really a voice like hearing voices in your head. It's very hard to describe, but it was, it was certainly not my thoughts and my uh, imagination. And I knew that because often she told me things I didn't want to do. And sometimes I didn't do them. And then it didn't pan out very well. So I learned to trust this. And again, I thought this was very weird when it happened to me, but it's not unique at all. Ananda Moyamai, a great uh, contemporary Hindu mystic, reports being guided by what she calls her kayal, I think it's pronounced. In one of the books we have, it's defined as a divine inspiration. She would get these kind of divine inspirations. In the video we have of her, she talks about actually having dialogues with it. Socrates said that a prophetic voice to which I have become accustomed has always been my constant companion, opposing me even in quite trivial things if I was going to take a wrong course. In other discussions, it has often checked me in the middle of a sentence. This sounds to me very much like Athena, that kind of quality. Simone Weil, a contemporary uh, mystic, described what she called a, a spiritual vocation as one being guided by certain impulses. Here's what she says about it. I saw that carrying out a vocation differed from the action dictated by reason or inclination, and that it was due to an impulse of an essentially different order, and not to follow such an impulse when it made itself felt even if it demanded impossibilities, seemed to me the greatest of ills. Hence my conception of obedience. She's talking about what does it mean to obey God, to be obedient to God. Well, she had in her, she would feel these impulses which didn't come from reason and didn't come from personal inclination. And she recognized them as being divine. And it's interesting what she says, that she felt that, that she would have to try to carry them out even if they seemed impossible, even if they seemed irrational or undoable. And this was my same reaction after the Athena dream, that I realized that, that somehow if I didn't act on this, if I didn't take this seriously, now it'd be just really damaging. Even if a inner teacher never appears in a visual or auditory form, like in dreams and visions and so forth. Nevertheless, visions and dreams can still be a window to this archetypal realm. In other words, the inner teacher is still giving teachings, but it may not be in one consistent form, like an Athena appearing over and over, or, or Christ appearing over and over. Here's how Teresa Vila describes what happens in certain states of suspension or states of absorption, they're really like samadhis. They're like you go into deep con contemplative prayer and, and this world sort of disappears and it's like you're open then to having lucid kind of dreams, or waking dreams is a better way to put it. She says, when the soul is in this state of suspension and the Lord sees fit to reveal to it certain mysteries such as heavenly things and imaginary visions, it is able subsequently to describe these for they are so deeply impressed upon the memory that they can never again be forgotten. But when they are intellectual visions, they cannot be so described, for at these times 
come visions of so subtle a kind that it is not fitting for those who live on earth to understand them in such a way that they can describe them. Although after regaining their senses, they can often describe many of these intellectual visions. That sounds a little confusing there, but I think I know what she means. I'll give you an example of that. But notice, first of all, she differentiates several kinds of uh, showings, as um, another Christian mystic, Julian of Norwich, called them. Some are quite visual. They're imaginary things. It, she means by that they're images. So these are more dramatic sorts of, you know, like a vision of something. But then she talks about these intellectual visions. And she describes them as being so subtle. And then she says that you can't describe them, but then she says, well, actually, you can describe some of them. I had one in my own personal experience that was quite vivid, that, that really fit this category completely. Uh, one night, I, I didn't actually fall asleep. It was just like a, a, a totally lucid dream. And it wasn't even a dream. I was just lying there all night long. And there was this extraordinarily abstract sense of a form and some sort of substance, like a liquid. Now, as I'm describing that, you see, I make it way too gross. It was much more abstract, but it was something like some sort of very abstract form, like a cup, and then some sort of uh, nameless liquid being poured into this form over and over, all night long, be poured in. And then this voice was saying, and that wasn't, again, a, a voice voice, like a uh, somebody speaking, but it was very definite. It's saying, now this is form, and this is substance. And this is form, and this is substance. And this went on all night long. And just before dawn, I mean, I was really getting kind of tired of this. And then this voice says, do you get it? And I said, I got it. <laughs> and the voice says, well, there is no form, and there is no substance. <laughs> and I woke up, and it was daylight. I opened my eyes, it was daylight. So this had gone on all night long. Now, as I'm describing it, you see, I'm giving it more form than was actually there in order to describe it. Actually, it's a, it's a very uh, profound teaching about the nature of the world, and, and it's influenced a lot of my subsequent uh, writings, especially about worldview things. Namakai Norbu recounts several times being shown actual meditation texts in his dreams. And I'm going to read you one because it's quite fascinating here. This is from this book, Dream Yoga and the Practice of Natural Light. And I'm just going to read you one paragraph. This was another one of these nights that went on and on and on. He started going to sleep. And then this voice would say, go to the state of samya, which he'd never heard of before, but he would sort of go deeper and, and instruct him, say, relax, and he'd relax, and he'd go to these deeper and deeper states, and then he'd get woken up. And then you have to start all over again, going through all these deeper states, and then you get woken up, and you have to go back. So this is going on. He says, uh, now he's fallen back to sleep. He says, the voice now instructed me to direct myself to another state. As I did this, there began to appear a kind of tiggle. A tiggle is a little sphere, a drop in Tibetan uh, cosmology. As I did this, there began to appear a kind of tiggle, similar to the one which had appeared in a previous dream at Tolu Cave. I also saw some writing, and then I woke up again. I had to start at the beginning, relaxing through the different stages until the tiggle reappeared. What I had seen in the tiggle was the title of a text. This time, 
after the title, there appeared a text itself, just as if I were looking at a movie screen. One after another, an entire series of meditation practices appeared. I was reading page after page, but if at any point I couldn't read one, I would only need to think to myself that this wasn't clear, and the unclear portion would return. It would repeat itself as if I had some sort of telecommand. In this manner, I read the whole text from beginning to end at least three or four times. That's quite vivid, isn't it? Quite astonishing. He, he talks about uh, later, uh, a similar thing happened to him, and then he got up and he wrote the whole text out in manuscript form. The Tibetans have this tradition of, uh, I think it's pronounced a tirtan. Uh, a tirtan is someone who finds these dharma treasures, these teachings that are hidden in the archetypal realm. And this is a, an example, he doesn't call this a tirtan, his uncle is a tirtan, but this is an example of finding a teaching that in their cosmology, it, some a bodhisattva hid this teaching, you see, up in the archetypal realm, so he's just really discovering it. But notice how it's come to him. The Quran came to Muhammad exactly the same way. He's in a cave and Gabriel gives him, you know, the Quran. You know, he never claimed to have written the Quran. He just comes back and reports what Gabriel said to him. That's all. So we, we hear about these things and we think, oh, I don't know. Maybe those, you know, Muslims are just making this up as a way of justifying this and all that. But I have no doubt personally that Muhammad genuinely got the Quran this way, just the way Namakai Norbu got this teaching. Visions and dreams can also foretell the future sometimes. Again, I had this great man dream on the eve of going to Vietnam, which really predicted everything that was going to happen in my life in a, in a kind of compressed version up until the time I went on a spiritual path. And it was a dream I'd always remembered, but I had never really thought of it in that way until the very beginning of my spiritual path. I started to write it down for the first time, and as I started to write it, I started to say, oh my gosh, what's happened here? Sometimes dreams can predict something quite precise that's going to happen while waiting to be executed. Socrates had this dream. He'd been condemned for corrupting the youth of Athens, and he, his, uh, the way he was going to be executed is they were going to bring him a cup of poison to drink. So he's sitting around talking about his friends, and they're trying to coax him to get out of town. They can bribe the guards, and they can get him out. And they keep saying, we got to go today. You never know when the guy's going to show up with the poison. And he says, I, I know when he's going to show up. It's not going to be for three days. And he says, the reason he knows this is because he had a dream. I thought a woman came to me, handsome and well-grown and dressed in white. She called to me and said, Socrates, on the third day you will reach fertile Pythia. And this is a line from the Iliad and apparently symbolically reaching fertile Pythia, at least he interpreted mean reaching the land of death. So he interpreted that to mean that they weren't going to come for him for another two days. This, they had time to talk, and as it turned out, that's when they did come for him. Visions and dreams can advise you how to live your life, either in, in uh, writ large or in specific uh, instances or events. For instance, Crazy Horse, the great uh, Oglala Sioux, had this vision when he was a young man. I believe he was on a vision quest, or it might have just come as a dream. And in the vision, he saw how he should conduct himself. First of all, the Sioux were great boasters, Sioux warriors. When they come back from raids, you know, would boast how many coups they'd uh, counted on their enemies and stuff. And he was not allowed to boast. And he was not allowed to dance. And they were great dancers. So these are all odd things that were 
sort of personal taboos. These are things he wasn't supposed to do. And then uh, the warriors, as they became great warriors, got to wear more elaborate head bonnets, you know, with all sorts of eagle feathers. Well, he was told none of that stuff. You dress very simply, and you don't have all this paint on your face and all that. He had one streak of lightning he was supposed to put on his cheek, and one little stone he was supposed to hang behind his ear, and that was it. And if he did this, the prophecy, this was also prophetic, the prophecy was that he could never be killed or hurt by an enemy, by someone outside the Lakota tribe. And it turned out in his life the only two times that he was ever wounded was one by a fellow Lakota. He stole his wife and the guy shot him in the face. Can't blame him. And uh, at the end, he was killed by a Lakota who had uh, gone to work for the cavalry. So here's an example of how one vision determined his whole life. I mean, he lived by that, the advice he got in this one vision, and he lived his life accordingly. The kind of teaching or the kind of guidance you can get in a vision may be more specific. It may be addressing some problem that you're facing immediately. And again, a personal example comes from this period of time when I was in Hollywood, and I knew that I was going to leave Hollywood. I had to leave Hollywood, and I didn't know what to do. I wanted to do something useful, something of service. And I already had this idea of taking a trip traveling around, visiting these spiritual communities and stuff, but I didn't know, I didn't want to be just a tourist. I didn't feel, uh, from, for myself anyway, of being service. And I was sitting, just meditating one day, and I wasn't thinking about that particularly, and I just had this vision. And it was really like this world was wiped out, and I saw this mound of rubble, these ruins, and springs coming up, and, and springs of water, and they all ran together into a stream, and there was this voice, it wasn't an auditory voice, but it said, a thousand springs become a mighty stream. And I immediately said, that's what I will do. I will go around to these communities with a video camera, and I will get all little bits of their wisdom, and I'll put it all together on one videotape. And that's like all these little springs, and I'll put them all together. So that solved my immediate problem. Interestingly enough, again, this was one of these things that turned out to have more meaning than I thought at the time, because actually my work has turned out to be to follow that vision, because that's what I do. I gather from all these traditions the water of wisdom or as, as best I can and try to funnel them into a single stream of a teaching. This is very similar to something that happened to St. Francis. And he had a vision, and Christ said to him, rebuild my church. And there was a little church on the outside of town that had been abandoned, was falling down. Literally, the bricks were falling down and so forth. And he went out and, with his own hands, started rebuilding the church. So immediately gave him something to do. Also later, he realized that this was a vision about trying to reform the church. So in a larger sense, to rebuild the church. So these kinds of guidances, these kinds of teachings can have a lot compressed in them. They can seem to address something very specific, and they will, but they also can have more and more meanings that will unfold over time. And then there's another way guidance can come, a kind of a strange way, at least it seems strange to us in our modern materialist culture, and that is through synchronistic situations. So this is a word that uh, Jung coined to describe these situations, so it's got a nice modern ring to it. And he defined synchronicity as a meaningful equivalence or conjunction in causally unrelated processes. And usually this is something going on inside that comes into conjunction with something going on outside you.
So his uh, famous example that he tells from his work in therapy is the story of a scarab. And what was happening is he had a patient, a woman who was having a lot of difficulty in the, in the therapy because she was very much an intellectual and she wouldn't let go of this very, very rational way of seeing the world. So all this stuff about archetypes and, and unconscious and all that didn't make any sense to her. And he was having a lot of problems with her in the therapy, trying to get her to accept the validity and authenticity of her own dreams, her own inner life. And at this point, she was describing this dream that she had. And this uh, central motif in the dream was this golden scarab. A scarab is like a beetle. And at that moment, as she's describing this, he hears something banging on the window, and he looks behind him, and there's a big beetle, a yellow beetle, trying to, you know, bang against the window. So he opens it, and he grabs it, and it's this yellow scarab-type beetle. And he hands it to her, and he says, there's your scarab. From then on, the therapy proceeded well, because the shock of it was a, such a jolt to her rational mind that she began to accept that there was more going on in the world than she had dreamed of, the fact that there would be this amazing coincidence here. So really, you could say what spiritual synchronicities are when the inner teacher is combined with the outer teacher, not necessarily the human teacher in form, but that inner intelligence is showing up and matching something that's manifesting in the outer world to you. A classic or cliche example of this is somebody walking into a bookstore and a book falls off the shelf, bops them on the head, so they take it home and read it and it changes their life. Uh, it's interesting because I worked in a bookstore at the Bodhi Tree in L.A., and books do spontaneously fall off shelves. It was, it was quite strange. Uh, a more profound example, uh, and a classic example, is Augustine's conversion, St. Augustine. Augustine had grown up as a very worldly young man, but he'd been interested in philosophy, he was interested in Plato, he was interested in mysticism, and then he became interested in Christianity, but he was going through this tremendous inner struggle because he was a lusty guy. He had mistresses and all this and actually had a mistress at a time. And he was going through this struggle whether he should renounce a worldly life, really become a renunciate, or should he keep his mistress and keep his, you know, normal life going. And he was going back and forth, back and forth. And he got to a real psycho-spiritual crisis. And he was with a friend of his and they were talking about this. And he was really just in a state of frenzy almost. And he describes hearing this voice, and it's like a child's voice saying, take up and read, take up and read. And it must have been a sing-songy voice, because he started thinking, children don't sing songs like, take up and read, take up and read. But he kept hearing this. So then he suddenly realized this was the voice of God. This was an inner teacher. And he ran into his library, and he picks up a copy of the gospel, and he opens it at random, and just the passage that his eye falls on says, not in riotous living and in lustful living and all that is Jesus found, but, you know, give all that up. So it's not only the fact that he'd found this passage, but it directly spoke to what he was struggling with. But there's an example of synchronicity. There's something going on inside, seeking of guidance, and then actually even a voice coming from inside, and then something manifesting in the outer world that speaks to that, to provide some guidance. Now, some people can accept all this business of having an inner teacher, a higher self, and all that, but they balk when it comes to accepting that synchronicity could give you authentic guidance. Especially, this is true in our culture, because we have this materialist background, because synchronicity involves physical events. And 
you know, there are people who can accept the idea that there's some deeper aspects to us psychologically and that stuff could come from there and guide us and all that. But how can these two apparently separate orders combine together? Well, I just want to remind you, first of all, that in quantum mechanics, in fact, physical events do display non-local connections. There's absolutely no question about that. It's been proved by uh, physical experiments. So I'm not trying to draw a connection here and say that the, you know, synchronicity is an example of quantum mechanical non-local connections, but ultimately we might find that there is a larger way of looking at it that, that we can see that these are two aspects of the same thing. In any case, physical events are not just connected through local causal relationships. And then, of course, we must remember from the mystic's point of view, it's all unfolding from the same source, the inward and the outer, and it's all purposefully unfolding. Purposely meaning it has a purpose. It is a, a display of a single dance, uh, a single event. So the fact that there's a correlation between what's going on inside and outside is not the least bit mysterious. So these are some examples of the forms in which inner guidance can take. An actual teacher appearing to you in dreams or visions, having an ongoing sense of a, a a voice, or maybe not even that strong, like uh, Simone Weil described, uh, these impulses. By the way, Theophane, the recluse, writes about this, and he says one thing that's important, in the beginning, these divine inspirations, the sense of uh, having an impulse, they can be very subtle, they're easy to overlook. It takes a listening, and it takes a trust in that. But anyway, these are various ways. Synchronistic events uh, can happen, and these can all be opportunities for guidance for you. But then the question is, how can you invoke guidance? Supposing none of this is happening to you. You're not having any significant dreams. Uh, you're going along, you don't hear any voices, you don't feel any particular impulses, uh, nothing uh, unusual is happening that would lead you to believe synchronicities at play. What can we do about it? Well, another way of talking about this guidance coming from this inner realm, this intuitive mind, transcendental intelligence, it's, it's a grace. It's the grace of God helping us out. And Ramana Maharshi was asked uh, by some disgruntled disciples at one point why he didn't give them his grace. The idea, particularly in Hinduism, is that the embodied guru at some time can zap you with his grace. And th from the seeker's point of view, you're sort of waiting around for the, for the guru to think you're worthy or you're ready or whatever. And some people had been at his ashram for a while and they weren't getting any grace, and you know, so they complained to him. And he said, the Lord whose nature is itself grace does not have to bestow his grace, nor is there any particular time for bestowing his grace. In other words, this grace is always available. It's not like somebody sitting around waiting to zap you or can zap you. The grace is there. The problem is we aren't open to it. Ben Arabi says the same thing. He talks about people who ask God for things, and they don't realize that God's gifts are never withheld, but they aren't prepared to receive them. They can't receive them because they haven't done the preparation. So it's not like God is withholding anything ever at any time. So why aren't we open to it? Why don't we see that at least some forms are uh, teachings, are uh, vehicles for guidance and so forth? And ultimately, why aren't we open to see that the whole world is nothing but a divine self-disclosure? One of the problems is 
uh, I think this is particularly true today, we look for guidance from higher self to serve the lower self. We hear about a higher self, an inner teacher, a source of guidance, and we say, oh, goody, I can somehow harness this. It can help me, you see. I can then get the things that I want and that I need and I deserve. And so we start asking for guidance about things like how can I get a soulmate or how can I advance in my career and things like that. And the problem here is the attitude is totally flipped. The higher self is always serving you. But it's not serving your lower self. That's the deluded self. It's serving the higher self. It's serving itself in a sense. That's your true self. So the higher self is not the least bit interested in what the lower self wants. And from the point of view of the lower self, you have to take the attitude, not how can the higher self serve me, but how can I serve the higher self? And sometimes they look similar, particularly because there is this paradox. God, the inner guru, is always serving you. Everything is always serving you. But it's not the ego you that it's serving. It's the true you that it's serving. So we must really be willing to accept the guidance when it does come, regardless of whether our ego self likes it or not. And that's a, a big clue. I used to know people in the, in the 60s who throw the I Ching. They, they want some guidance about something. And they throw it, and they wouldn't like what the I Ching told them, so they throw it again. <laughs> and they wouldn't like that, so they throw it again. Finally, they get something they like. Well, you're not giving the I Ching a chance to guide you, if the I Ching is going to guide you. If you have a problem, and you throw it, and you're going to take it seriously, then you try to carry out what the guidance is. Not decide you don't like it, so let's try again. People often do this with their dreams, by the way. One of the big things in dream work is to get over the idea of, oh, I like that dream, I didn't like that dream, you know. And if you start keeping track of your dreams, some you like and some you don't like, but the ones you don't like may be more valuable to you than the ones you do like. This is really uh, just a, a specific form of surrendering your will. Thy will be done, not my will. Related to this, a similar kind of thing is emptying your own mind of judgments, intellectual solutions, reasoned out, logical ways to approach a problem. That doesn't mean you don't think about that. But ultimately, guidance comes from outside of that. It comes from here. And as long as we are spinning over in our own mind at that local egoic level, solutions to the problems, we don't have any opening for something to come from outside. This is why often the most powerful kind of guidance comes at a point where you are actually stymied in life where the intellectual mind just can't think up anything anymore, doesn't know what to do. The will gets stymied. So, for instance, to give one example, the circumstances in which Athena appeared to me were very important. It was a point in my life where, for the last 20 years, ever since my early 20s, I had had this secret ambition, desire to be a film director. I'd gone to see some of these new wave French movies and Italian movies that were just coming in in the early 60s, and they were so different from Hollywood movies, they were really art and so forth, and I said, oh, that's what I want to do with my life. And I spent the whole the rest of the 20 years of my life, one way or another, relating to film with the idea someday I would become like Fellini, the great Italian director. Uh, and then I got into Hollywood, and I got off and, uh, into the executive field, 
and got farther and farther away from actually directing. And then when my life in Hollywood started to go sour, uh, all the stuff from Vietnam came back and I broke up with my wife and I no longer enjoyed the goodies and so forth. I, the last hope I had was, well, you know what's happened? You see, you've gotten sidetracked. You should go back to what your original vision was, to be a director. So this is what I did. I had some money and I got some friends together and some actors I knew. And I wrote a little uh, short film that was going to be like a showcase film. And I shot it. And this is one way you can become a director in Hollywood. You have a showcase film. You go around to show it to people and you convince some producer to give you a shot at a first cheapy feature. And then you go from there. And the very night that I'd finished this and finished the editing and I brought it home from the editing room and I put it up on my TV and I looked at it. And it wasn't bad. It was okay. But I knew I was never going to be Fellini. And I could probably have made a living as a director. You know, there are a lot of good, decent directors around. But I was never going to be that artist, Fellini, that I always dreamed that I was going to be. I just knew it looking at this. And I went to sleep that night, the first time in my the last 20 years, without buried somewhere deep in my mind an idea of what I was ultimately going to do. It was just wiped out. So I went to sleep with a totally open mind in that sense. Do you see what I mean? An empty mind. I had no idea what I was going to do the next morning when I woke up. I mean, I knew I was going to go to work and all that, but I no longer had any long-range view of what my life was about. That was the night Athena appeared to me. So here's a very good example of how guidance comes when the mind is empty of your plans, your schemes, your ambitions, and your thoughts about the future, about the solution to a problem. The biggest obstacle, however, is that we do not make an effort to overcome our self-centeredness through spiritual practice. And so people are always looking for guidance, for guidance and guidance, and aren't doing any spiritual practice, and aren't doing, aren't living a, or trying to live a selfless life. It isn't self-centered. That, that itself is the barrier. This is why Rumi writes, Everyone sees the unseen in proportion to the clarity of his heart, and that depends on how much he has polished it. Whoever has polished it more sees more. More unseen forms become manifest to him. How do you polish your heart? Well, I mean, you know, we've always talked about this with the various principles, but the two basic ones are let go of personal desires and have only the desire for God. What God wants. This is thy will be done, not my will. And the second is to practice a selfless love and compassion in relation to other beings. Stop looking at what you can get out of every situation and let go of all that. This is literally opening up, opening the heart, opening the mind up. And then the world starts appearing differently to you. The outer world starts appearing differently to you, and the inner world starts appearing differently to you. This is why Theophane, the recluse, says, The most important thing is to begin to act in a manner that is truly spiritual. And then the spirit will start to burn. For as a result of all this, the gift of grace, which lives within us, will begin to grow. Grace is already there. That inner teacher's there, that intuitive mind is there, it's waiting to be awakened, or it's really not so much waiting to be awakened, that's what it feels like to you. It's waiting for an opportunity to be heard, to get through all the clamor of our, you know, worldly thoughts and minds and so forth. And then finally, 
you have to act specifically on specific guidance when you get it. Jung is a very good example of this in Jung's work. Uh, Jung, who did so much in terms of investigating the collective unconscious, drawing our attention to the fact that these archetypes uh, appear from culture to culture, that they really aren't personal, who did really an extraordinary amount of work. But he was also very frightened of mysticism, particularly Eastern mysticism, and this whole idea of egolessness and selflessness and so forth. And he always um, said that the, the great strength of the West was to have individuation and you, to have an ego and a stronger ego and so forth and so on. And then towards the end of his life, he began to realize that was, ultimately you had to have some relation to this higher self, but he never wanted to let go of that ego self. And towards the end of his life, he had a purely archetypal spiritual dream. He describes, uh, he's walking along and he comes to this chapel and he goes inside and he's surprised not to see any Christian symbols, crosses or anything. There's just some flowers there. And he looks down and he sees this yogi, interesting, Eastern yogi in meditative posture. And he looks at him and he sees that the yogi's face is his face. And he realizes this yogi is dreaming him. And he wakes up and he says he was terrified. And then he analyzes the dream correctly in the sense that he's saying that the, this realm and ultimately God is dreaming you, the ego. And what the dream was showing this reversal, total reversal of value there. But then he goes on back into this whole thing about uh, we have to make contact with this, but we cannot give up the ego and all that. He never makes the switch of identification. Right there, if he had realized he's that yogi that he saw and not this person, that's it. So he rejected what the dream was trying to show him. It was one of the clearest spiritual dreams I've ever come across, you know, for a person. It just shows you exactly what the real situation is. But he wouldn't make that leap, that, that leap of identification. And so, again, this was a, a, a case of missed opportunity. So then the last uh, question comes up here. How can you tell that the guidance you get in dreams or visions or synchronistic things or impulses or inspirations or however, whatever form it comes in, how can you tell that it's authentic? Well, first is to consider the purpose of the guidance. Even if the guidance is very specific, it has to fit some way into an overall context of purpose because all spiritual guidance, authentic spiritual guidance, has one and only one purpose, one and only one goal. That's to awaken you from this slumber of ignorance. It's to liberate you from the delusion of suffering. It's to make you realize that you are a form in which consciousness perfectly realizes itself. And all the guidance you'll get, even if it's some specific thing, like you have a dream, you should get on a train and go to Portland or something, has that as the ultimate goal. So maybe you won't know exactly a specific form of guidance, how it links in. But if it's guidance that clearly is not going in that direction, it's not authentic then it's very important to become aware that the ego can be very deceptive. We're reading this book, Trunkpa, uh, on spiritual materialism. He talks a lot of things that happen during the course of a spiritual path, how the ego can turn it around and try and use it to enhance 
or to defend itself. It's particularly true of guidance, and one of the most common ways the ego does this is to impose its own imaginative thought pattern on the guidance, to take the guidance and rework it into its own little fantasy, its own thought forms. So you have to be very careful of the imagination going to work on these situations, your personal imagination now. Uh, this is what Theophane says about contemplative prayer. The path from without to within is blocked by imagination. To arrive successfully at our inward objective, we must travel safely past the imagination. If we are careless about this, we may stick in the imagination and remain there, under the impression that we have entered within, whereas in fact we are merely outside the entrance. This in itself would not matter so much were it not that this state is almost always accompanied by self-deception. So he's talking about, in this process, you can look at this mandala and, and think of it as making this inward journey, trying to go from out here to the center, ultimately, which is God or consciousness itself. And what happens is you get to a certain point and the ego starts taking over. So the idea is when you get guidance, it's just a question of you get the guidance and go act on it. Do what is required. Don't let the imagination get in there and start judging it, turning it over, turning it to something that it ain't. Then authentic guidance always has an autonomous kind of quality. I mentioned this in the beginning. It has a sense it feels like it's coming from outside the ego, even if it's coming from inside, like in a dream or like an inspiration. This is why Simone said this impulse is of a, a different order, a different character than impulses that come from your inclinations. That is, you know, you get hungry or you're lonely or something like that. Or impulses that come from your rational processes, where your mind says you should do this, you should do that. Not that they don't have a certain place in life, but that spiritual impulses have this feeling of autonomy. You didn't think them up. It's like, where did that come from? Voice of conscience is often a good indicator, as a good beginning of guidance. It's quite a common thing that happens to people, you know. You start to do something, a little voice says, no, that's wrong. If you listen to it and then act on it, it'll start to get stronger and stronger. And you have that sense that it is coming from outside. It's not something I'm doing. It's really getting out of the way. You get out of the way and let God do his or her thing through you. However, we also have to remember that guidance can be demonic. Not often. It's rare that it happens. And demonic guidance will also have this autonomous character. You know, like these people, they're arrested for murder and they ax people to death and they, their excuse is, God told me to do it. It's not always an excuse. I mean, sometimes they really hear some voice in their head saying, you know, go murder these people. I'm God. How can we uh, distinguish here? Or how can we think of this? Well, if we want to take Jung's psychology as a, a tool here and give us a terminology, we can think of demonic guidance as coming from a repressed shadow side of the ego. In other words, usually our ego is overtly selfish. But sometimes if you were raised in a situation where some of your own personal desires or whatever were just not allowed to be expressed, and uh, let's say anger or something, uh, you can repress that. 
and it gets repressed. Now, if it's thoroughly repressed, the ego can't accept the fact, and you can't accept the fact that the ego could ever get angry. It can come back at you, masquerading as a divine inspiration. So you hear a voice saying, this is God. Go out and murder those people. Well, you're not angry at the people, but God is angry, so you're just carrying out God's vengeance. So, how can you safeguard against that? Well, the best safeguard is to align yourself with a tradition that has standard moral values, precepts, virtues, and so forth, uh, that are recognized by all the members of that community. Traditions are very useful in the sense to guard against wacko, psychotic, demonic kinds of uh, manifestations masquerading as the divine. So in all these traditions you read, Ibn Arabi or Teresa Vila, they'll say, if you get a voice and it's way out of line with what your tradition is teaching, don't listen to it. The Sufis have a wonderful saying for this, and it's a wonderful image, never let the scale of the law slip from your hand. And, of course, uh, they're talking about the Quranic law because it's within the Islamic tradition. But it doesn't matter. The same thing applies. If you have a set of precepts, you have moral values and stuff, then throughout your path, weigh everything against that. Everything that's happening to you, weigh it against that. Sometimes you may find that the scale of the law uh, tips one way or the other. And that's okay. And we've talked about this in terms of precepts. Generally speaking, it's not good to lie. It's not good spiritually, aside from the harm it does to other people. But for yourself, it's not good. Generally, we lie for selfish reasons. There are some cases where it's more selfless, more compassionate to lie. But you're not throwing away the scale of the law. You're still weighing it by the scale of the law. But in this case, the lie is the right thing to do because you have the scale. That's how you know in this situation it's okay to lie. If you don't have the scale, you don't have any way of knowing. So all the way through, never let the scale of law slip from your hand. And particularly when it comes to guidance. Because if God says to you, you know, uh, go out and murder your parents or something, look to the scale of the law. There's, there's no precedent for that in any tradition at any time that I know of. You can also consult your spiritual teacher or teachers. Remember them, especially if it's your spiritual teacher who may be giving you demonic advice. Go talk to others. It doesn't matter if they're your tradition or not. You could go down to the rabbi down there, even if you're not Jewish, say, I want to talk to you. I've been hearing these voices say, you know, murder my parents. They seem to be coming from God. If when it comes down to, to this sort of thing, trying to judge whether the guidance is demonic or not, most spiritual teachers will be able to tell you. So having a tradition, uh, having teachers, they're all safeguards against this. But it's not a common thing. I don't want to scare everybody with talk about demonic influences. And there's a difference between just being a little selfish. The ego, that's the ego deceiving you, saying, oh, Oh, gee, I really want to go to Hawaii. I guess that means must be my inner teacher telling me to go to Hawaii. That's just the <laughs> ego selfishly deceiving you. Then finally, there's one other thing to guard against. And that is don't get overly fascinated or attached to even getting inner guidance or any other supernatural, so-called supernatural phenomenon that happens to you. And let me just leave you with Brother Lawrence's simple advice. He says... Let us not settle for seeking or loving God only for the graces he has given or can give us, no matter how great they may be. 
These favors, impressive as they are, never bring us as close to him as does a simple act of faith. Let us seek him through this virtue. He is in our midst. Let us not look for him anywhere else. So that's my little talk this morning on inner guidance. And we have, uh, hopefully, yes, time for questions. But also, not only questions and comments, but I would like to hear from many of you uh, your own experiences with this. Because I said, this can be quite personal. And if you have anything to share about that, it might be helpful to other people who are trying to find where the guidance might come from in their own lives. Yes? I have a question about um, your story, which... I've heard before and wanted to ask this, or at least say it, when you felt that you realized you would never be a Fellini, how can you really ever know that? Because a lot of great artists aren't really even recognized in their own lifetime. It's much later they're, they're realized to have been... Um, uh, you know, I can't answer that because it's not like a, an external criteria. I thought maybe I could make it in terms of recognition, in terms of... Mm -hmm of working as a director, do you know what I mean? But I would never be able to satisfy my own inner standard for being a great director. Even if you were as great as Fellini? Well, all you I can... always carry that not good enough feeling? Well, this is the point. The two ways of uh, judging Fellini. How people outside Fellini judge Fellini, and that will change over time, do you know? We may look at Fellini 10, 20 years from now and say, oh... It's overdone, it's self-indulgent, and this and that. I mean, these tastes really change a lot. But the other side is how Fellini looks at Fellini. And for me, I wasn't looking at the outside, I was just looking in inward. So it's just something I knew that I would never be able to satisfy my own standards of what a great director was. And I was not willing to be a, a second-rate director, inwardly. I knew it would not bring me satisfaction. May I say sure. something, and I don't know quite if I'll say it well, but it's obvious to me that you are as great as Fellini, except you're not in the same field. I mean, you're greater <laughs> than Fellini, but you're not in the same field. I, I know for myself and for a lot of us here, there is no other teacher that can do for us what you do. Well, in a way, you are in the same field. Yes, Now, I'll tell you a difference. I don't have any standards like that inwardly at all. I'm not trying now to live up to some ideal of what a great teacher might be. And one of the problems of delusion is that we do have these images. They are images of ourselves and our best, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? They're constantly causing us suffering. So when you realize they're totally imaginary, you just drop it, it just disappears. You know, if you think I'm a great teacher, there are other people who've come here and said, what? What do you see in him, you know? I mean, he doesn't perform any miracles, and he's not particularly inspiring, and, you know. So this is all in the eye of the beholder, and there's no objective standard. Inwardly, I just don't have any standard. Inwardly, I just do what I do, do you know what I mean? Now, in a practical sense, sometimes I realize that all oh, the people I'm going to be speaking to now at Palo Alto, they're not as familiar with the terms that I use. I have to adjust my talk, do you know what I mean? I have to try and be simpler. Or certainly when I go out to Skipworth, I make a radical adjustment talking to these kids who've never heard of mysticism. But it has nothing to do with whether I'm a great teacher. It's, it's trying to match you know, what's being said to the audience. And sometimes I'm more successful, sometimes I'm less successful by that relative standard. But that has nothing to do with that inner idea of who you are. And that's what 
goes, you know. Yes. I wonder if the ego can some kind of times uh, masquerade as the intuition. So, for example, I could see a situation where someone would uh, feel like they had an aspiration to be a great artist and uh, have the sense that they could do that, and then a voice would come in and say, oh, no, they'll never be great, and that that could be all a part of the ego certainly back and forth without having to do higher yes uh, uh, yes this is a very complicated and modern uh, psychology is some better than others in my opinion but deal with that you know how complex this sort of feedback ego feedback mechanism get that if you've been told all your life you'll never succeed that voice starts to have a kind of a, a what, what do they call superego so this you know quality about it it's not a real intuition, but it keeps you back, and you know it, it can get the the looping back and back and feedback on top of that, and looping back and create all sorts of complexes. So to tell the difference between that just being the ego talking on both sides, um, does it have then to do more with looking and seeing whether this has a spiritual base, either pro, I can be a great artist, or no, I can't? No. Here's the, here's the whole point. Either side of that, what's at stake? I. Yeah. See? So, it's just as egotistical to say, oh, I'm no good at anything. I can't do anything. Do you know what I mean? And actually, it's a defense mechanism, so you don't have to put yourself out any place, and don't have to take any risks. So, people who go around feeling, I can't do anything, I'm no good, and so forth. That's ego. That's all ego defense. That's not any kind of true humility or anything spiritual about it. So the uh, the duality here is all revolving around I. That's what tells you it's ego. When it's spiritual, it has nothing to do with whether you're going to be a great artist or not. That is how you know it's divine. It cuts through that can I or can't I, or will I be great or won't I be great, and all that. It, it, it cuts through that, and it's a way of acting that isn't based on I at all. The tape ran out at this point. That concludes our talk.